I'm talking to Sharon Burrow. She's General Secretary of the International Trade Union Confederation, and she represents the world's working people who are facing an incredibly tough and uncertain time right now. Um, Sharon, first off, could you tell us quickly where you are and what daily working life is like for you right now? Well, I'm now uh, working remotely at home in Brussels, so all our staff are working remotely except those uh, of our security team and the uh, occasional IT uh, uh, dependency, but uh, basically it's a challenge now to manage, as everybody is, a global office of people in their own homes. And while we have the technology, it really does play up the uh, opportunities but also the costs and the uh, potential risks of people being atomised from their place of work in, uh, in, you know, 100%. Yeah, of course. What, what have you found, like, the single toughest nut to crack in this situation? Well, I think the first week was just the sheer intensity of making sure that uh, not only we were dealing with an unprecedented crisis, but we were making sure colleagues were... Um, connected. While we're very lucky really to have a close-knit staff, I think the mental cost, the mental health cost of this crisis will play out in the months to come. So I think just making sure people are connected, that you stay in touch is actually critical, but it's also a big slice of time. Mm -hmm. And uh, those human uh, interactions we take for granted on a daily basis, you know, passing someone in the coffee corner, having a quick briefing, you know, meeting people uh, on the way to work, whatever the daily rhythm might be, you don't actually realise how efficient that interaction can be until you're trying to manage that uh, remotely because there's a lot more talking. And uh, I've counted uh, at last count 10 different methodologies whereby People can connect with me, talk to me, seek answers. And in any one day, that's a big challenge. But I must say, I think for people with young children, this is an incredible time. And uh, having been a parent and indeed a teacher, then uh, I understand the challenge of basically we could be in a four, five, six, eight-week school holiday period so balancing work and family takes on a whole new realm of uh, of challenges so some good things but some incredibly worrying things about you know the world being basically uh, shut down from a personal point of view from an economic point of view this is nothing short of potentially disastrous for people's livelihoods and indeed for stable economies yeah, there are so many strands to explore there. Just one that jumped out at me was parenting. If there's one sentence to just strike dread into the heart of parents everywhere, it's the idea of, you know, a month school holidays stretching into months. What can workplaces do to better support parents during this time? Well, I think we have to think about, uh, you know, how you provide the mix of work and parenting that works in each case. You know, where there are two parents, of course, then that's uh, perhaps a rostering of time with children because the children matter as well. Their mental health matters. Their um, need for uh, support and uh, activity scheduling and just uh, indeed attention is very important for their own health and development. 
So I think you have to be conscious that for parents, you can't have a 24-7 operation where they can actually be online, available to work, uh, and particularly for us in a global organisation, then that adds uh, additional challenges. But the human aspects of those issues must be front and centre. So people must feel the security to say, I can't work for these hours, I'm available for these hours. And then, of course, you have those of our staffs who are sick. Now, luckily, we don't have serious cases yet, but we have people with uh, symptoms and uh, part of their day will often be fatigue if they're able to work. And so covering the work schedule for those uh, employees is also very, very important. Normally, they would take sick leave, but you would have, of course, teams in the office physically to actually be able to share out that work. Now, you have to be conscious of a whole new level of uh, efficient scheduling and, uh, you know, making sure that we've covered off on what has to be done that day or that week, depending on the circumstances. And these are the challenges and difficulties when people are in a job. There are some very stark warnings coming out about just how many jobs could be lost as this unfolds. What are your expectations on what this crisis is going to do to the global job market? The imbalance of the global economy is now being found wanting. First of all, we really say thank you to those businesses who have indeed kept their staff on, made sure that they have income security, that they have a sense of job security going through the medium to longer term. But there are many businesses who have simply taken an opportunity to lay off staff. And that's uh, even in some cases, they're taking money from government support and still laying off staff. So there is a, a divide in the business community. There is one set of businesses who say, well, we need to look after our workers. We need to work with the unions to make sure that uh, the humane aspects of this crisis are dealt with as uh, positively as possible. And, of course, from those business uh, voices, there's been joint calls to government to support uh, people, first and foremost, workers on the front lines, of course, our health workers, our transport workers, our workers in supermarkets and related services, those other care facilities, schools where they're still operating. These are high-risk safety uh, issues for workers in that situation. And we owe them a huge debt of gratitude. But mm -hmm. beyond that, where the factories and the retail outlets and the services are shutting down, people have often far too little um, sick pay, if, if uh, any at all, and the wage and job guarantees are lacking. The ILO says we could lose up to 25 million jobs. I think, uh, depending on the time frame, the cost could be, frankly, higher than that. But what we have to do is everything to minimise it. So, first of all, if you go to the health crisis, the big glaring gap is only 50% of countries are providing free public health care. And, and, and I'm talking about uh, the wealthy G20 countries. I'm a bit focused on them because they are, in fact, uh, meeting as a leadership group on, on Thursday. But if that's the case in the richer world then in the, in the developing economies where the virus is only just starting to spread, then the, the health fallout could be disastrous. So there has to be both 
and understanding that at this time, whether it's a mix of public and private testing and care, it has to be run on public health principles, has to be available to everybody and to be a partnership across what is a divide usually on a profit uh, basis. And in the context of developing countries, then we need a solidarity that's extraordinary. When you come to businesses that have uh, indeed uh, now been forced to uh, lock down, to close their doors, because, of course, not everybody can work from home. In fact, 50% of the world's people aren't connected to the internet. So, again, when you're looking at the developed economies, it's not everyone that can work from home, but globally it's simply not possible. But when you look at in the, in the responses to date, mostly from Europe and from uh, the US and Australia and a few other countries, then uh, indeed while um, we've seen quite a lot of initiatives to, uh, to support small business in particular, and we actually support that. But when you then consider only 21% of countries in the rich, richer world are providing sick leave, paid sick leave for some or all workers, then that's a disaster of humanitarian uh, crisis levels that is unconscionable. But then when you look at the fact that you need beyond paid sick leave from day one, you need uh, wage security or income security if you're a if you're not a direct employer, you're still going to need income. So whether you're a worker on a platform business or indeed gig economy, as they call it, uh, whether you're uh, a freelancer, whether you're self-employed, whether you're in the informal economy, we certainly need to, uh, to see income support. And that's much less of the guaranteed packages to date. That has to be expanded. And then, of course, in terms of job or employment protection, only uh, around five of 15 G20 countries have given good guarantees about supporting jobs. So that has to, those things have to be the next wave of consideration by all governments. And we've asked the G20 governments to look at those elements of um, a response measure that go to supporting workers and small business in partnership, because you can't just give money to business and then business doesn't flow it on to workers. So mm. there's got to be some sort of um, criteria, some conditionality mix, some uh, direct investment in, in working families uh, themselves. And that's the best guarantee of the real economy. If you mm. have money and you can still survive, then, of course, you are going to use that income now for critical uh, survival needs of health products, um, clearly um, food and essential services. So mm. we do need to look at the economy as a whole, but to take it from the perspective of working people and their families, which wasn't done in the 2008-09 crisis. Mm. Are there any countries that you feel are actually getting this right right now? Are there any examples of policies that have put in place that for you are hitting the mark? If you look at uh, the two phases of uh, the Nordic countries like Sweden and Denmark, there was an initial response and then a much more detailed response. Germany's reinvested uh, in um, its 2008-2009 uh, uh, package and then increased support even beyond that. So those countries look at those key elements of paid sick leave, of income for 
guarantees for all workers and what the mix of that is. And the best of those packages, including uh, the second phase of the UK package, have been negotiated with the unions. Outside of Europe uh, and the UK, you'd have to go to places like New Zealand, um, Singapore, Argentina. Argentina's done a very good job in their economic, uh, you know, kind of frame of, of, of economic, uh, critical economic decisions anyway, coming out of, you know, their decline over the last few years. But they have looked to be inclusive of all people. And, uh, and I would say surprisingly in, um, in Latin America, we've also seen some measures to include the informal sector and particularly those uh, in, uh, in the farming communities. And that's a very good thing, but it's still only in two or three countries. In Africa, slow to move, but then the virus has been slow to spread. There are no discussions going on. But our message is very simple. You have to look at the guarantee of paid sick leave. It's a health crisis. Different to 2008, 2009, this has started with a human dimension and therefore in the real economy and is now spreading to the financial sector. In 8, 9, we saw the speculative economy simply spiral out of control and cause a crisis in the real economy. But remember then, nothing shut down. We took huge hits and yes, there was high unemployment, inequality escalated, but the economies didn't shut down. This is a very different environment and it will take us to think through a frame of short term, what are the package deals? We know what they are, support workers, support income, support job uh, protection where you can, support small business and and make sure that we're able to pick up an economic base in the medium term. But then from the medium to long term, we're going to be looking at uh, post-reconstruction policy frameworks that we haven't really had to deal with um, since probably the big shocks in the world, World War I, the Depression, World War II, you know, big issues like the Marshall Plan, you know, debt swaps, and, of course, now we need to see them designed to align with investment in people and the environment, so the SDGs. But above all, that longer-term perspective is to, to rebalance economies. What we've found wanting is that the unbalanced economy where you can't any longer get essentials, even health essentials, because they're produced in one group of countries and not in some balanced fashion around the world or food or other essential supply chains. We have to look at how you build a better economy with the convergent crisis of the environment not going away, the COVID-19 crisis, the underlying inequality crisis that was already fragmenting our societies and creating an age of anger and the challenge of technology, which in some ways, this experience will tell us what we need to do to get it right so people are indeed connected and we're not abusing technology at the cost of, uh, of human um, existence so, and, uh, and healthy human beings, both physically and mentally. So big challenges, but going forward from the medium to the longer term, social dialogue to design a more balanced and better economy dealing with all those areas of crisis that are converging is going to be critical. 
For the minute, of course, we're all focused on the short term. And I would say two key messages. Uh, keep the essential supply chains open. Our supply chains for health products, for food and other essential services with sometimes mindless border closures without thinking about what that meant has made it more difficult than it should have been. And the second area of challenge is those uh, supply chains that are not essential but with other areas of retail, um, electronics closing down in the short term, then we risk a, an even greater devastation than the current dehumanising exploitation of supply chains. And if you're talking a million people in Bangladesh in the textile sector alone, multiply that across all the Asian and African and Latin American supply chains in those sectors, and you get a picture of the potential human cost but you also get a, uh, the risk that much of that won't come back quickly. So mm. it's a time for social dialogue. It's a time for rapid response from governments. The multilateral environment's been found wanting. We've all been saying it's in crisis, but now it's basically hardly there at all. So this G20 meeting will tell us who's going to act and who's not and what we can do with business, with uh, workers' organisations, to be on the support and the design team with those governments who want to act in the interests of their own countries, but also vitally in partnership with the developing world, which will be devastated. To return to your point about <clears throat> the, the human consequences of this and the lack of sick pay that is so widespread, have you heard as an organisation stories of people who basically have no choice but to turn up to work sick and then presumably spread the pandemic even further? Oh, it's everywhere. I mean, you know, some of the symptoms are mild. Of course, it's very serious when you get to the, the life-threatening risk end of that mm -hmm. curve. But uh, if people work in the informal sector, if they're day workers, if they're in factories that are still opening and there's no paid sick leave, no income guarantee then um, or job guarantee, then you have no choice. You have to feed your family. So you're going to go to work. And that is uh, simply a recipe for extending the, uh, the reach of the virus beyond the kind of containment period that we're all working towards right now. And what would your message be to G20 leaders in that context? Very simple. The emergency plan is to share our wealth, to make sure there is paid sick leave, to re-establish a social contract with a floor that is paid sick leave, income uh, guarantees, and that means, of course, wages, but it also means um, for those who are in self-employment, freelancers, the platform business uh, workers and the informal sector. This is a time for social protection generally and for investment in vital public services beginning with health. When you look at that health picture I raised, only 50% of the wealthy countries, the G20 countries, are providing free public health care. And we've seen the stresses and strains on countries like Italy and Spain and others of that then imagine what it's like where people simply can't afford the, the concept of going to the doctor because it's, and I'm talking even countries like the US where it's so, uh, so enormous. So social protection, 
public services, health, education, care. These are the issues of design for the future we need to get right if we're not to see this level of devastation with the continued inequality that we were already facing. And, of course, to do something about the climate emergency, which won't go away, we have to marry the design of better economies with, uh, indeed, climate action and action from COVID-19, along with those vital areas of employment protection, income, a, a, con a new social contract. Definitely need a new social contract. We already did, but now uh, this is uh, shown the, the cracks in a world where if people are vulnerable, then the economy is vulnerable. Times of crisis have historically also been opportunities for change. Are you optimistic that as countries emerge from this, it actually will be a chance to create a better economy? Well, you know, I can see how we could design a better economy and use the opportunity. But we also need both national and multilateral uh, institutions at work. And when you have, uh, if you just take the G20, I was at the table in 2008, 2009, 2010, where governments actually, with the uh, International uh, Monetary Fund, other institutions, actually took decisions that were about people, about uh, employment, about maintaining jobs, as well as, of course, stabilising an economy. Now, we didn't get it right. We certainly didn't get the rules of the financial sector right. And if you think then we were worried about the too big to touch banks and we didn't solve that, now we've got the too big to touch monopolies in the global tech companies and we haven't begun to solve that. So, you know, everything in between is also a replication, therefore, of the human cost where governments have failed to, rate, to uh, regulate labour markets. So we have now 60% of the global workforce effectively working informally and that means of course in uh, in a platform business as well as uh, those informal jobs with no rights no minimum wage no uh, social protection emerging in our supply chains that has to change it can change if people can sit at the table but if you go back to that uh, that group of g20 leaders who aren't with us anymore apart from uh, uh, i think chancellor merkel but, uh, you know, some of the other key leaders, Gordon Brown, Obama, Kevin Rudd, Lula, these people have disappeared from our ranks. And so that experience is, uh, is not there in front of, of them. And they acted together. What we're seeing here is a kind of retreat, which might be understandable emotionally, but is not going to help us. Solidarity and sharing and the sign of how you protect people, of course, within nations, but globally is absolutely critical. And at the moment, we are trying desperately with some of the business community to rebuild that social dialogue with uh, labour and business and governments. But while it works tremendously well in some democratic countries, by and large, it's not working in the majority of the world's countries and it's not working globally. And we have to, we have to come back from that. To look at the immediate pressures that workers are facing right now, I, I think people are generally aware of the extraordinary work that those in the healthcare sector are doing to fight the crisis. 
But what about the sort of forgotten heroes, the people who might be exposing themselves to risk to keep the wheels turning in our societies? Who are the vulnerable workers and what can be done to protect them? Well, of course, you talked about health and care workers. They're on the front lines and people recognise it. And that wonderful sense of solidarity in Europe where there's a clap outside the windows every night is actually a, a nice connection, a nice human connection with your neighbours in apartments and uh, neighbourhoods and the like. But they are very vulnerable because the lack of personal protective equipment has really caused much more infection amongst some of those frontline workers than should have been the case. Hopefully that's turning around, but I know it's still at critical levels from our unions in many countries. But then you have transport workers. I mean, we need those transport workers to keep the show going. You know, we have the supermarket workers. You know, every day, you know, people should say thank you to these workers because if you can't buy food, then uh, you can't keep your families uh, stabilised and healthy. So there's an extraordinary, uh, um, you know, set of challenges for them. And, of course, there are essential services. But it's, it's the shadows that people aren't thinking about. You know, people running shelters, the homeless shelters, Domestic violence, sadly, is on the increase, which, you know, might be understandable, but it's a tragedy. And we need more safe havens for women and children. And it's those carers. It's the people in, in aged care facilities where they're looking after the most vulnerable group of people. And, of course, it's, the, it's, it's all of the services that surround each of those sectors because you can't, you can't run these operations without uh, supplies and, and service support. So these people are heroes. And, you know, the terrible irony is often those sectors, particularly on the front lines of care, they're all dominated by women and they are, in fact, the lowest paid workers in our communities. So it'll tell you something when we come out of this about who, who we value and who we are prepared to pay decent wages for di for the dignity of decent work too. It's a it's an unresolved issue over a long time. It's uh, about feminised industries and unequal pay and lack of recognition. But I think if there's a chance to put that perspective in the medium to long term that says we must stop this, we must value those workers for who they are and we must pay them appropriately. With notable exceptions, there are still a lack of women sat around the table at any leadership meeting. Do you think that's actually playing a role in some of the things that are just not being spotted in the response to this crisis? Oh, without question. I think there's a lack of tables right now, can I say, <laughs> with, uh, with governments, workers and employers. And, of course, when necessary, some of those uh, incredible civil society organisations. But there's no question that women's leadership is critical because it will bring to the forefront the areas where women hold the fabric of both our societies and our communities together, but also our economies. So it is, uh, there is, of course, the immediate packages to give people security, to protect jobs and incomes, but there is then, as I indicated, a medium to longer-term planning challenge that says how do we... How do we make economies better? How do we learn to, build, to balance sustainability, inclusiveness, 
decent work where people don't walk away from the human and labour rights of workers and actually make for a, a future where the world is more equal but also much more stable. On that note, if we fast forward, um, it's been a nice mental exercise for everyone, I think. Imagine it's March 2021 and all this is a horrible memory. The economy has recovered. What is the one thing that you most hope will have changed to make it a better economy for workers? Well, I hope that we can uh, get beyond the dominant politic of leaders not putting people first. Of course, we want economic stability. We're working very closely with those uh, voices who are dignified and responsible in the business community despite their own challenges around their concerns for their workers and for a government policy that's, uh, you know, balanced and, and justified in these times. But we want an end to the profit at all costs mentality because if we don't build an economic future with people at the centre in a sustainable frame where we are respectful of our planetary boundaries and the need to change our energy and technology systems to have a living planet for human beings. If we don't make sure that design is inclusive of universal social protection, the world could fund it right now and yet 70% of the world's people have no social protection. That's respectful of public services and not simply trying to make profit of them at every turn, but the vital nature of public um, support for people and, of course, uh, of, uh, of the social dialogue that makes it possible for us to get the balance right. If you've got workers, employers, civil society at the table with governments at all levels, you can design the kind of future that takes into account the priorities for people, for the planet, and, of course, for stable economies. Wonderful. Thanks ever so much. Take care.